This episode is brought to you by Canela Bistro and Wine Bar, serving Spanish plates and over 70 wines from Spain in the heart of San Francisco. Visit us socially at Canela SF and canelasf.com. You're listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind with Matt Schuster. We're getting inside the brilliant and delicious minds of remarkable culinary individuals. We're telling stories, cutting up, and breaking it down. Hi, everybody. I'm here with my friend, chef, and proprietor of Lanyap Peak Vineyards, Erica Almeida Mooney. Hi, Matt. Welcome back. Thank you. So this interview was amazing. I am so jelly that I did not get to go with you. It's stupid. And the reason that I had this interview is because of you. So thank you so much. Well, you were welcome so very much. I live to connect interesting people. <laughs> thank you. So so Lori Wooliver, you more or less grew up with from the time that you were a young adult. Yes. So so we so, kind of came up together. So Tell me about that. Well, for a while we were living totally like parallel lives. Like she went to Cornell, I went to Ithaca. We went to the French Culinary Institute within a year of each other. I mean, basically the only difference between the two of us is that Lori is a hell of a lot smarter than I am. Nah. Um, I don't know. You hold your own. we met at Babo, where she was Mario Batali's assistant, mm-hmm. and I was working on the line. And one night, the salad person called and didn't come in, and Lori walked into the kitchen. And it's so funny, because it happened to be my birthday. And you know, my birthday is a big it's deal It's a big deal. Me. It's at least a week, if it not is, a month. There's birthday week. Yeah. And... She walked into the kitchen and she said, the first thing I saw was you standing there on, I guess I was working saute at the time and I had on a tiara (laughs) and like a pizza man jacket because I wouldn't wear, because the chef jackets they had were so big. I had to wear like the dishwasher pizza man jacket and I had like Doc Martens on because those were my kitchen and she's like, your hair was in pigtails. (laughs) You had a bandana with a tiara on top and you were like, yo bitch, it's my birthday. (laughs) Did you know who she was at that moment? I knew that Mario had gotten a new assistant. Oh, she was fresh. Oh, she was fresh. That's funny. funny. Um, And we had sort of past each other but hadn't Uh really had time because I mean you walk you know how it is you walk in a restaurant and you go to in the kitchen and you don't come back out right 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 right, right. was Mario's office there Mario's office was there so you know Bobo's in the old James Beard house Uh and Mario's office was sort of in the dining room Mm. because where the actual office and like the locker rooms was like in the bowels of the basement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like you had to go down like concrete. Like I mean, like you had to duck down. You couldn't stand straight up. It was oh. it was rough. Yeah, and that. so, you know, during service hours, Lori was allowed to come up. That's funny. Oh, she, so she worked down in the so basement. She well, that's where she was supposed mm. to be. Mm. But like I don't even know how you would have gotten cell phone service down there. Mm. It's the days of the landline. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so she would come and spread out on one of the tables. Oh, got it. Okay, so so you, you'd seen her around the dining room. I'd seen her around the <laughs> dining room, and it was that night that sort of our love affair began. It's funny, because she had mentioned that, I guess, 
you were short one night and Mario just told her to hop on the line. Yeah. And that was, it kind of wasn't her favorite thing to do, but she did it. Yeah. So she worked the line for like six months, right? But she didn't love it. No, she did not. She did not love it. And she was like, I don't really remember her working the hotline. So I feel like she was salad slash dessert. And that's the suckiest place to be. Oh, really? Why? Well, because you get hit at the beginning and then you get hit at the end. That is the truth. And so you're kind of taking it both ways. You know what I'm saying? Like it's no, and like everybody else is breaking down and you're waiting for the last people to order their scoop of sorbet. Yes. I've, I've often thought that as I'm like going home and someone else is still waiting to finish up to go home. Yeah. No, I, I get that. So... Lori Wolliver, right now, she is coming off of a crazy whirlwind career change. Oh, my goodness. She, well, first of all, killing it in every oh, yeah. sense of that manner, yeah, yeah, of, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. of the word. Yeah. But after our years at Babo, she kind of bounced around a little bit and was doing some food writing. Mm-hmm. She was, like, doing the food photography and writing of this thing called art culinaire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we talk about that. We're like mm-hmm. these hardcover books that like they like people that stage houses would put mm-hmm. them in. Um, mm-hmm. I have the whole set. Oh, that's awesome. I've, well, you know, my girl, mm. they're really cool, but I don't know that that was the love of her life either, but I think all of these things together led her to Anthony, mm, mm-hmm. um, and she co-wrote her first book with him. Yeah, or I would say she co-wrote her first book that she got co-writing credits on. Mm. I feel like she had a large hand in writing several other books that maybe she didn't get front cover credit on. Yeah, I, I can only imagine she is writing two books right now, finishing one that she and Anthony started, and then she's writing the life story of Anthony. I didn't know she was working on two books. Yeah. My yeah. Lord. I know. Is there anything she can't My do? My Lord, I know. My goodness I know. gracious, bless her heart. I know. The, the, <laughs> so so you did an awesome job at, at summing up pretty much, you know, most of what she's doing. I'll, I'll add in a few more things from her official bio. She is a food writer for the New York Times, GQ, Food and Wine, Lucky Peach, Savour. And she was an editor at Wine Spectator, a subject... Mm-hmm. Very near and dear to your Yes. Heart. Yes, she was. And yeah, we had a couple boozy weekends up in Napa, <laughs> uh, Lori and I. The first time I ever went to French Laundry was with Lori. Oh, really? I've never been yeah, there. Yeah, when, and I had just finished working for Mario and she was still working for Mario. And you know, like when you go somewhere and you're in the industry, like mm-hmm. they style you out mm-hmm. and you don't often pay for a lot of things that you eat. Depends on who you work for, it but depends, right. Yeah. But I remember, like, the bill came, and Lori and I were like, "We need to go wash some dishes." Like it was, it was, it was like nine hundred dollars oh or God. something, or like That's a thousand dollars, and we were That's like, "Excuse me, <laughs> like, do you not know that I'm a line cook and she's uh, an assistant? Like, what's happening here?" Yeah, that was fun. And she's also just one of the funniest, wittiest, driest, she's, acerbic. Yeah. And don't forget, she's got her own That's podcast. Right. Carb Face. Carb Face. Yeah, which um, is, please check it out. It is hysterical. It is so funny. Yeah. And she, if you don't follow her on Insta, 
I feel like you need to get on that too because she finds the weirdest things in grocery stores. It's bizarre. I'm like, where do you live? She's got a good talent. She's got a good talent for that. (laughs) So the day of the interview, she's in Queens. So I took the train out to Queens and... Also, just like a badass move. Like, I live in Queens. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like she moved to Queens when everybody was moving to Brooklyn. And she was like... F you Brooklyn. Right. I'm going to Queens. Right, right. Like, what was it was it was really actually it wasn't super hard to get out there and her building was really quiet actually. It was one of the most quiet interviews I did in New York. Every other place, as soon as I turned on the microphones, there would be like a thousand New York noises. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so she's now trying to figure out, you know, at one point I think she thought she was gonna work for Anthony forever. Yeah, I think she did, especially after the success of Appetites, which if you don't have it, is an amazing book. You need mm. to to pick it up. It's got some just great, one of the best macaroni and cheese recipes mm. ever. So yeah, I think that she was really, you know, as you said, they had started writing another book. Mm-hmm. Like they had just found this dream collaboration mm-hmm. and where also I think the fact that Anthony could kind of go out and be in the world and Lori would kind of keep him grounded to a home base. Mm-hmm. And she would kind of keep everything running, you know, in the normal world while he was in Vietnam or right. wherever he was, you know, going to next. And they just had this really great line of communication. They just kind of had figured it out. So I think that this is big and scary to her right mm-hmm. now. I mean, mm-hmm. To working on two books will we'll take some time. Sure. I'm excited for her because I think that this experience is going to prove to her that she can do it on her own. She mm-hmm. doesn't need to piggyback on, you know, she can do it all. She mm-hmm. can understand the recipes. She can she's cook. smart. You can tell. Oh, she is a, she's a smart cookie. And mm-hmm. she's really like diving in to different flavors and ingredients like she's totally up on like the japanese and Mm. asian ingredients Mm -hmm. and i think that's really exciting for her Mm. or at least it gets me kind of jazzed for her Mm -hmm. Mm. well you haven't heard the interview i know i cannot wait i know so let's take a listen if you want to shout out to erica it's mooney erica on instagram at mooney erica thank you once again Anytime, baby, I'm always available to be your plucky sidekick. Hi, and welcome back. I'm here with Lori Willivar. Hello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining. Thank you for having me slash coming over to my apartment. I'm in your place, so so it's it's you're the inviter. But thank you. Well, I appreciate you making the trek here and letting me not have to trek myself into Manhattan. You know, it was actually very easy. Oh, good. It it is. It is. People think of Queens as this like no man's land. It's so easy to get here. Like there's to me, it's much easier to get here than to Brooklyn. Yeah. Which is a a schlep through the southern ass end of Manhattan. And then you're only just starting. (laughs) Queens is a straight shot across. It is. And it it was like a block from where I'm saying is perfect. Mm -hmm. The subway. So jumping in, I'd asked you before about who cooked growing up. Yes. And you gave all these, I, I assume your food writerness took over because you really do well at transcribing your memories into really vivid pictures, which is great. Oh, One of the things that, well, you doesn't have to be word for word for what we talked about, but, but I'll tell you the thing that stuck out of my head. Yes, please tell me. 
buttered bread. Uh huh. Okay. You were talking about I think Sunday Sunday dinners. Oh at yes. The grandparents? Yep. It's my father's parents. Yeah. Yeah. They're very old. My grandmother had my dad when she was forty five, and my grandfather was fifty. So, and that was in 1946. So these were like old, old people uh, when I was a kid. They're both deceased now, but my grandfather was born in 1895. Wow. So like one of his jobs as a young man was like cutting ice out of the river in the upper northern reaches of New York State oh, wow. and like bringing it down and selling it. You Ooh, know what for, I mean? For ice boxes? Yeah, I guess. Like, I don't, it just, their whole way of living was so old, you know, for lack of a better word. They were just old people in the 70s and 80s when I knew them. And, you know, I don't know that I appreciated it as a kid, but now I really look back and I'm like, wow, like that was, they were like real relics, you know, of a different time. They met in the gun factory, you know, um, and their house was just full of all this wonderful old stuff. Wore a lot so, of hats. A lot of hats. Yeah. yeah. They had a beautiful garden. So to them, Sunday, we would go visit on Sunday afternoons and it was like Sunday dinner was a thing, uh-huh. you know, and it was very much the same every time we would visit. It was at the dining room table with the linens and the silver and the glasses and the china. And it was, I always remember there was a turkey and a ham. Mm. And I don't know that, that was the case. Every, there were only you know, six of us at the table. So that Mm -hmm. seems like a lot of food, but Mm -hmm. my memory is that it was always a turkey and a ham, mashed potatoes, gravy, usually a couple of vegetables that I had no use for, but, you know, was made to try and buttered bread. Mm -hmm. Like that was, and it wasn't toast and it wasn't rolls. It was like slices of store bread Mm -hmm. with a lot of butter on it and glasses of whole milk, which seems just like gives me a like a little bit of a gag reflex to think about now, but these big tumblers full of whole milk and then a pie. Oh, at least one, usually two pies, like a coconut cream. She was big on that and lemon meringue and pumpkin. And and your grandma would make them. Yeah. She cooked everything. Yeah. And maybe my grandfather would like peel a potato. He would Uh go dig the potatoes from their garden and then peel them and she would cook. I mean, it was just super... Super old fashioned and great, you know, and then you would just be so tired. Like, and also, like, they. It's like Thanksgiving, Easter. Yeah, but it would just be like a random, you yeah. know, Sunday in March. Right. Or August. That was the worst, you know, because you'd be like, oh, it's so hot and drinking this whole milk. Finish your milk. Yeah. And then the f- homemade whipped cream with the pies. She would make mincemeat pie, all kinds oh, wow. of beautiful pies. It's a nice memory, but I remember as a kid being feeling sort of oppressed just by having to sit at the table and behave and, you know, eat all this heavy food. Were there food. other kids there? Just my sister. Mm. Uh, my father is an only child, so it was always just the six of us. Uh, and my grandfather would buy candy for us. Like, we would get there, and there would be like half a dozen full-size candy bars for each me and my sister. Mm. And then like a pound of mixed, you know, candy and a couple of packs of gum and maybe like $5 worth of change. Like just, it was always (laughs) this whole thing. It was great. You know, we really got sort of spoiled. I mean, I didn't really help too much. By the time I was interested in cooking, nobody was doing much cooking anymore in that family. So I didn't really ever, there was never like a, you know, fuzzy memory of like helping grandma cook. Mm -hmm. It was just like showing Mm -hmm. up and shoving my face full of food and then sitting and reading Good Housekeeping magazine (laughs) after after lunch. (laughs) Well, the more people I talk to, I guess it doesn't matter if somebody cooked at home with somebody else. Because I know that a lot of times you hear chefs say, or people who cook say, I grew up cooking with so-and-so. Mm-hmm. And the more people I talk to, really not everybody did, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the, the memories are the most important thing. And mm-hmm. it doesn't matter 
necessarily where you get those food memories, but but you get those strong food memories for sure, which which you seem to have, which is mm-hmm. which is amazing. Mm-hmm. So I asked you another couple of food memories about the best couple of dishes that you've ever eaten. I went to England and France about two months ago. So we went. We were spent a couple of days in Lyon and went to Paul Bocuse Leal, um, mm-hmm. which is you know, basically like a fancy food mall, you know, it's sort of the, it's an Italy or, a, um, you know, whatever, but it's all Lyonnais producers mm. and, you know, this, the, the cheese stall and the sausage guy and the, you know, it just, and it was, I didn't know what to expect. And I was a little bit cynical, like, ah, you know, the food mall, you know, right, but it was right. beautiful and I shouldn't have been cynical at all because everything was just extraordinary. So there was different bakeries and one was kind of simple. It was a lot of breads and, and, you know, kind of simple tarts and stuff. And then in the back they had this blueberry tart that was, it just, I don't know. I'm not even like really a blueberry person or a tart person, but it kind of just like, were they like little tiny blueberries? No, they were like good, yeah. like big size, you know, medium size blueberries. It just, it was so incredibly simple. It had just a bottom crust, like a shortbread crust and then the blueberries. And there was nothing, there was no backup wall for the berries and, you know, and having tasted it and, and really kind of picked it apart, if there was gelatin, it was used very sparingly. Uh-huh. Maybe there was added pectin or something. It was so artfully done. And the blueberries were, they just stood up, they held their shape, the whole thing held its shape. And I kept thinking like, this is like an, ar- this tart is arrogant. Like this tart is so <laughs> sure of itself. And uh, so we bought a slice of it and brought it back to the place we were staying. And it was just Shook it up so in the box and, and it was still yeah. perfect. <laughs> yeah. I mean, walked, walked probably a mile and a half with it in the box and, uh, you know, upstairs right. and up the hills and stuff. And yeah. it totally was, t- but, but it wasn't stiff, you know, like uh-huh. some pastries can stay intact because they're just like loaded with whatever. Right, 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 this right. was just this, I don't know. I don't know what it was about it, but it was so simple and perfect and it tasted delicious. So that was one that really stuck with me. And then at the beginning of the trip, we went to London I had never been to London before at all. Like I've been to a lot of other places in the world, but had never been to England, never London. So I went to dinner the first night at St. John and ordered the bone marrow, which is like this, you know, very famous dish, much, much imitated around the world. Mm. But I believe that Fergus Henderson was among the first, if not the first to do it. And it's, you know, roasted bone marrow and a little parsley and shallot salad mm-hmm. and toast and I think that's it. And you get a little knife and you just make your little toast. You put the marrow on the toast and put the salad on it. And it's it's beautiful. It's delicious. And something that Tony Bourdain really loved and mm. had me try and replicate years and years ago when I first started working for him. He asked me to help out with a holiday special. No Reservations used to do like an annual holiday special that was always like totally off brand and batshit crazy in some way. And that year they were doing like these, the big classics, the big French classics. I know I wasn't like splitting bones and I wasn't, but somehow right. the, the bone marrow dish came, came together. Right, right, right. Uh, so he loved it. He always talked about it. He, I think he probably featured it at least twice on television mm. when he would visit St. John. I don't think that he made the dish famous, mm-hmm. but he certainly, the way that he could with his platform, you know, elevated the consciousness sure. of, of something. So it felt important to try the dish in the place where it came from and, and, you know, as an homage to Tony and just to go to the source for the thing. And mm-hmm. it was, it was perfect. It was, oh, the salt too. is the important thing. Oh, the yeah. big coarse grains mm-hmm. of, of salt to finish. So those are two recent good food memories. I mean, I have a lot, but those stick out. I always think about my first fancy meal in New York was at restaurant Danielle. 
I had opportunity to interview Danielle Baloud recently, and I was telling him that. This was like 1997. And I know it was a beautiful meal, and it was many, many courses, but the only thing I really remember was the dessert, like this chocolate, some kind of like little chocolate mousse cake. I don't know why. It was just I just remember looking at it and being like, I am in the fanciest restaurant. <laughs> this is amazing. I've never seen it might have had gold leaf or something on it, which I have since, you know, come right. to despise. Right. But uh it just struck me like as this, you know, recent college graduate, like it was my boss that had taken us all out for dinner and I was like, I have a really good job. Uh, this yeah. guy will take us out to this restaurant. Yeah, no kidding. So. Oh my God. But with your love of food and your podcast called Carb Face. Mm-hmm. You don't really like carbs though, right? Or maybe I should say you have a hard time with carbs. <laughs> I love carbs, yeah. but I, you know, like many, many people, I have realized that the secret to like maintaining a healthy weight is right. to not just eat all the carbs I want all right, the time, right, right. you know? Yeah. And I, I definitely had to sort of have a hard talk with myself and be like, do I want to, it was, it was my 20th high school reunion. And I was like, I just want to like, feel slender, you know, <laughs> and got on the diet treadmill. And I know it's a very, you know, it can be very controversial, but like I needed to lose some weight. I yeah. was overweight. I had, so I lost 35 pounds and I've pretty oh, wow. much kept it off more or less by, you know, whatever exercise portion control and trying to limit my carbs. But then of course I always make exceptions and right. especially when I'm traveling. So it's a love hate relationship and the name carb face for radio. Chris and I fought about that. You know, he thought maybe it was like body shaming and fat shaming and we didn't want to present ourselves like that. And I said, it's all, no, it's see, all self-hatred. I <laughs> You're equal opportunity hatred. Yeah. No, it sounds to me like you like carbs. Yeah. You know? I love them. I just no, can't, I mean, like, the, you know? like the title makes it sound to me like you like carbs. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 I mean, carb face, you know, I was something I was, you know, say to myself, right? I went to Italy a few years ago and I sent my friend a picture and I had been in a real, like, really restricting carbs, but then I went to Italy and was like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, obviously yeah, gonna I'm going to go hard on the pizza and the pasta. And I sent my friend a picture and yeah. she said, are you having a good time? I said, yeah, but look at my carb face, <laughs> you know, because like in my mind I had somehow like, you know, ruined everything by two days of pasta and pizza. And it was just, it's crazy to be 45 and to still be like wrestling with this stuff, but you know, such is As, the culture. I think it's all part of it. But the inclusive buffet vacation oh god (laughs) that is that is too much right yeah yeah Yeah. tell me about that the trip that i went to mexico Mm -hmm. was that it oh Mm -hmm. god yeah what was terrible (laughs) it was so terrible i think what is it about like all in the words all inclusive that turn people into monsters monsters right well i think it's honestly it's like you are paying for every last morsel of food every drink every minute that you're on the patio by the pool like you're paying through the fucking nose Mm -hmm. and i decided to go on this trip with my family because my i have an only child and my son often would get bored and restless on vacations because he would be the only kid you know (laughs) so i thought well let's go to a place where there's lots of other families and there was a kids camp and i had this whole fantasy that he would just go off and make a bunch of friends and Is have a great time. Is he the kind of kid time. who does that? No. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I was delusional. He's, he's gotten better at it, but right. like, 
we got there, he took one look at, at this, least you tried. <laughs> yeah. He took one look at this group of kids with their like dirty yellow pinafores on and was like, oh, fuck that. I am not doing that. The only, not that kind of kid mom. Yeah. He's not, he wasn't a joint. He's a little more of a joiner now, but yeah. he's not a joiner. So like the whole reason for being there was that, that we could just, that he could make friends. Didn't happen. And then it's just, um, you know, it was really, really expensive. And I had had a really good year financially that year. So I was like, eh, you know, like throwing money around. And I think about that now. I'm just like, God damn it. <laughs> it's like three months rent or something. Um, and this was Mexico. This was Mexico. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just hated it so much. It just, the food was not good. The Is service was Is it one of those places where like you, you go into the gates and they close the gates and it's, yeah. you know, yeah, everything's there's... okay. And then you kind of stay there. Yeah. 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 So. I mean, we were left a little bit, but it was like an effort to leave, right. you know? <laughs> but yeah, there's like six restaurants, each one mm. more terrible than the next. And you've got to like reserve in advance and like fight for your times. Oh, and it's like a stationary cruise. Yes. And I, you know, I've always said like, I'll never go on a cruise. So this was at least not, you know, you could leave. I think I was just at like in an unhappy place in my mm -hmm. life too. So I won't totally blame it on the resort, but I just, I don't want to hear other people fighting with their kids or their spouses. Mm -hmm. I don't want to have to get up at 6am to like claim three seats together mm -hmm. by the pool, which was totally happening. Mm -hmm. You know, just all of it and the, the waste and the, um, I just, yeah, I, <laughs> I can't say enough bad about it. Uh, <laughs> and the other thing is that they try and upsell you. Like the minute you, I've already spent so much money uh -huh. to get us there and you're, I'm checking in and they're like, well, you could join our club and you could get an upgrade. And for this much more, right. you, and I'm just like, are you fucking kidding right. me? Like, do you understand how much money I've already spent? And now you're telling me like, I haven't spent enough money <laughs> to get the good experience, <laughs> right. you know? So I was just mad the whole time. And then I bought some like over-the-counter Xanax and uh, <laughs> that did not help as it turned out. And I will say also, this was like less than a month before I quit drinking forever. Oh, so I think this was, it. I was kind of like... You were, you, were, you were coming to the... I was, yeah. I was coming to Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, the thing that, that I think one of the things that bothers me most about an all-you-can-eat buffet type experience, especially with the buffet, is mm -hmm. people who are like eating while in the buffet line. Yeah. <laughs> it's like your chair's just right over there yeah. and the pile of food is literally like 10 feet away yeah. from you. Go sit your butt in the chair. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. I don't want to watch you like, you know, eating as you're like walking down the line. It's disgusting. Yeah. I'm like you standing know? over the food right. and just taking stuff that you wouldn't take just because it's there yeah. and yeah. letting your kids just behave like monsters <laughs> and just, yeah, this is too, too much. I realized I was like, all I want is to go to like Antarctica and go into like an ISO chamber. Like that was my <laughs> reaction. Your kid, I'm sure, would love that. Well, maybe yeah, though, yeah. maybe though, maybe he. he <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> your first job was working on a cookbook. You're like one of your very first jobs, right? Yeah. Well, you mean like as a post culinary school graduate? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. The first cookbook I worked on was with Mario Batali. I was his assistant for three and a half years, and we did first a holiday book, which was kind of a little throwaway book, which still I think is a great book, focused on Southern Italy. I know Mario's canceled, but you know, I <laughs> it's hard for me not to take some pride in the work that I did with him. Right, right. Uh, but then also right away when I started working for him, we started working on the Babo cookbook, 
Um, and that was a long project of about two years of taking the recipes from the kitchen and sort of making them into home cook recipes and, you know, working with the cooks, working with Mario to put that book together. And I'm and I'm proud of that book. Did you cook at Babo? I did a little bit. I came in as Mario's assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I, I quickly learned that that meant just like do anything, do what needs to be done that day. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's, you know, doing the admin stuff for Mario. Sometimes it's checking coats. Sometimes it's cooking for Mario's kids. Mm. And for a month or about six weeks, it was cooking in the garbage station mm. at, at Babo because somebody had walked out about an hour before service mm. on a Sunday night and I was there and Mario came out of the kitchen and said, put your apron on, you're cooking. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> like I, you know, I had just graduated from cooking school and I, I had decent skills, but mm-hmm. I was you know, I had opted out of being a restaurant cook because I felt like I knew who I was emotionally and mentally, and I didn't really feel like that was the right place for me, you know. But I did it because it was my job, and I was proud of it, but I also kind of hated it every single day because mm. it was just so hard, mm. you know, and I wasn't good at it. And I I know that if I had had the whatever fortitude, maybe I could have gotten to be a decent, you know, restaurant cook, but I, I just... I just found it so, so challenging. I couldn't wait to get back to just being his assistant. It was fun in its way, you know, and it was satisfying. And I I do look back and say, well, I did it. You Mm -hmm. know, I was able, I didn't like quit my job. I didn't have to go to the hospital, you know, but, um, (laughs) but it was very, very difficult, you know. How was being Mario's assistant? Also difficult um, (laughs) in a different way. I mean, I learned a lot about a lot. And I've written about this before, you know, before his sort of comeuppance, I I was very uh, transparent about, you know, the fact that it was, it was a great opportunity for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I learned about the restaurant business. I learned about, you know, New York and real estate, celebrity, the press, you know, Italian food and wine and culture, you know, just everything. And he could be really fun and he could be really difficult and abusive. And I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. You know, he's a complicated person. Did Um, it seem more than others or it was par for the course with your experience with restaurant culture at that time? I'm not sure how much I knew about other people. I definitely, you know, I started over the years to become friends with other, mostly women who were in similar positions with Mm -hmm. high profile chefs. And then, you know, we're talking 20 years ago and I definitely got the sense, although I think people were a little more afraid to talk about it with each other, but I got the sense that, you know, guys at this caliber were not so dissimilar in Mm -hmm. their power, the ways that they manage and abuse their power, the ways that they, what they expected from people. You know, I never really heard anybody say, oh my God, he's so nice. He's like so generous. You know, it was always kind of like, yeah, I had a really horrible day or this happened or, you know, I'm, I'm scared of this person or, but it was worth it because X, Y, Z. So I don't know. I think I'm sure there were there were people who treated their employees better, and I'm sure there are people who treated their employees much worse. Mm. Uh, so he probably was somewhere in the middle. You know, what was great for me was that uh, when he was fun, he was really fun. Mm-hmm. You know, and the people that I worked with were really fun. They were at the top of their game. You know, the the restaurant won the James Beard uh, Best New Restaurant Award right when I came in, mm. and there were just you know people that had come from Gramercy Tavern and other fine dining you know great restaurants in New York, and so there was just this sense of like. We're working at a really high level. We're really proud of the work we're doing. You know, we're we're excited to be here. That was huge, you know? And so 
I mean, at some point I had to leave. I felt like I can't, if I do this forever, I'm just going to become a like bitter alcoholic, <laughs> you know? So I was there for about three and a half years. It was great, you know, but I, but you know, I didn't want to be an assistant forever. I didn't make that much money. And, you know, I felt like I was in kind of this, I felt a little bit illegitimate in a way, you mm -hmm. know, because everyone else had like a very defined job that was very skilled and important. And I was this kind of floating generalist, you know, who could cook a little, who could answer phones, who could, yeah, you know, but those, those people are great. Yeah. You know, we, we always like people who, who can do more than one job and, yeah. and, but it's, you know, it's a certain kind of person who can, yeah. who can do that well, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So where did you land after Mario? So I wanted to write more and I mm -hmm. wanted to sort of be able to do my own thing. So I had this weird hybrid life for a while where I was freelance writing. Mm -hmm. And then also I had a couple of private cooking clients, like families that I would cook for a couple times a week. And then I also did a lot of freelance catering in that time. So I had two or three catering companies that I would regularly do either prep shifts or party shifts for. What was your opinion of catering? I thought it was a good way for me to make money mm -hmm. and sort of without having to commit to an everyday schedule. You know, I found it exhausting in some ways. It was a whole different perspective. It's a slog, you know? I it's mean, hard. you work really, really hard. Mm. And in some cases, in weird places. Such weird places. I mean, it was. Like, caterers here, send them down to the basement. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, one of down the... Down nine flights of stairs. <laughs> <right>. and <laughs> One of the catering kitchens that I regularly worked out of, it was in a, I don't know, it was like an old school or an old church, and we shared the kitchen with the girls' club who was who had a business making cookies. <laughs> so it was this straight, you know, we would be alone, and the girls would come in, and we just had very different business styles and different management styles. And of course, you know, we were adults, and they right. were 13-year-old girls. She had with, a bunch of, like, you know, cussing cooks. Yeah, And then yeah. in come the girls who would make yeah. their cookies. Um, and one of the big uh, clients we had with that company was Radio City Music Hall. Uh -huh. So that was actually really cool. Well, that's fun. For the Christmas season, we would do these parties where people would pay extra for their ticket. They would come see the Christmas show, mm -hmm. and then they would be able to come in and have the meal afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so it was... We, was it a, it was a full, like, a, a seat? Yeah, it was like turkey. It was sort of like my grandmother's house. It was turkey and <laughs> ham. Bread. And, uh, yeah. And then, like... Hey, Lori, quit buttering the bread. Yeah. <laughs> Pizza and cookies. I mean, it was very kid-oriented, but there were right. things for adults. And we worked out of this old kitchen that had just... I forget what the history of it was, but it was old, old, like unrenovated, beautiful yellow tile, just mm. strange stoves that didn't really work that well. And we were working in the theater, which was cool. Mm. So yeah, I enjoyed the experience of catering, but I certainly did not want to make that my main gig, mm -hmm. you know, mostly because I wanted to be a writer and I, mm -hmm. I you know, I could see but, that and any... You were, you were young at that time and, mm -hmm. and it was one of the things you were trying out to see what you didn't want to do as well, exactly. which, which is super valuable. Yeah. I did so much of what I didn't want to do, <laughs> <laughs> but I just, it was a way to make money on the fly, you uh -huh, know, uh -huh. so. So you landed after that? So after those few years, basically got some bylines. I got a couple of New York Times bylines and New York Post. And, what was you the know, first one? Do you remember? The first New York Times byline I had was about, oh, what is that place called? It's a sushi restaurant that used to be great in Times Square. Bluefin? Mm. Maybe that's sounds, what it's called. Right. When it opened, let's, let's it was... Say, let's say Bluefin. Yeah. When it yeah. opened... Actually, it was a story about sake, but it was centered on Bluefin because they had at the time what was like an innovative sake program. And it was, you know, it was something that a publicist had pitched me. And the, the Times had a little, used to have a little column called Temptations mm -hmm. um, in the food section. And so there, was these, there were these short pieces where like a, a freelancer could 
you know, get their first foot in the door in the food section. So I wrote about the sake program there. That was my first one. A few months later, I wrote about corned beef, corned beef hash at a diner in Brooklyn called Dizzy's, which is mm-hmm. still there, which is, I love their corned beef hash. And I think there was That's a, a great recipe. Name. Yeah. And there were a few other, there was one about like a risotto, like unusual risottos. You know, it was a totally different. And so that must be fun to see your name in the New York Times. Yeah. You're like, all right. It was thrilling. Yeah. Yeah. No more picking up dry cleaning. Yeah. Well, you know, (laughs) it didn't pay that well. So I did that. I wrote for the Post. I wrote for a bunch of publications and just was able to kind of cobble a living together. But it was hard. You know, I mean, some weeks I would not have enough money. Mm -hmm. And it was just, you know, always kind of hustling. So when the job came up at Art Culinaire magazine, I applied for it, never thinking I would get it because Mm -hmm. I had never been an editor anywhere and it was executive editor. And what I didn't realize is that it was an extremely small staff Mm -hmm. of like one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was the editor and I was just managing an intern basically and myself. (laughs) So, um, But but in a way that's kind of nice because you probably did... All of the content, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was another one of these, like, learn everything mm-hmm. first day, of, you know, as you go. Like, I had never, I had really hadn't done very many interviews at that mm-hmm. point. I remember mm-hmm. freaking out, being like, I don't know how to conduct an interview, mm-hmm. and I've got to conduct, like, 10 for every issue, and just right. trying to read about, like, how to interview people, and <laughs> right. just really nervous, but I think I did a good job. That was a weird time. (laughs) The magazine's in New Jersey. uh, So I had to take the train every day, an hour out of New York to get to work. They were adamantly print only and they hadn't decided, you know, to move anything online. And um, no one's doing online. That's going nowhere. Yeah. So the, the readers, you know, it was it was struggling. I mean, financially, it was yeah. just in it was in like 2004 to 2006, a time when, you know, print publications were starting to, to see their numbers drop alarmingly. So there was always this sense of precariousness. And, you know, the publisher was like sort of a famously difficult guy. So, again, it was one of these jobs that I loved and I learned a lot from. And I was like all in and I got to travel a lot, but it also was like there were daily miseries and daily indignities and just feelings of like, oh my God, I can't, you know, like Mm -hmm. I'm dying out here. (laughs) So I did that for about two years. I wonder, you asked me about cookbooks and I I forget if I, if I talked about the cookbook that Mm -hmm. I got fired from. Oh yeah. (laughs) I think getting fired is great. It is. You know, it's something that I've kind of, I've just left off or, or my... Or let me just say, it can be great. <laughs> sure. It can be great because I, you know, I think some sometimes it gives you a big, a very clear message on, yeah. you know, maybe a wrong path. I mean, not always, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but but it, it can, I think, be a very good message, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. even a time saver. I've been, yeah, definitely time saver. <laughs> I've been fired twice and one I've talked about before, which is I was hired as a pastry chef and mm-hmm. I had no business being a pastry chef, but I was like, oh, okay. Because it was in my neighborhood. <laughs> I yeah. I was, well, I was, I was hired as a salad cook and then everybody got moved up a, a, a position because the sous chef got fired. So then they took me got from it. salad to pastry and I was like, I... So everyone was a little bit uncomfortable at that yeah, moment. Yeah. yeah, and it was a brand new restaurant, a chef who had never had a place in New York before. I think it lasted all of six months. Uh-huh. It was like a crashing disaster. Uh-huh. I was so relieved to be fired because I was in way over my head. And the same with the cookbook, to be honest. It was after I stopped working for Mario, somebody introduced me to an agent and I said, listen, I did this book with Mario Batali, and I think I can do more books, you know? And what I didn't really know at the time was that, you know, what I had done for Mario was the recipes. Mm-hmm. I had not really contributed to the 
concept. Mm-hmm. I mean, the concept was set because it was a, there was a Babo cookbook. It was a restaurant mm-hmm. cookbook, mm-hmm. and Mario's voice was extremely strong. And there was no onus on me mm-hmm. to do anything but make sure the recipes worked and and you know made sense. So this agent connected me with an author who was writing a second book who didn't have a clear concept for her book. She had had a very successful first book. So my job was totally different in a way that I didn't understand and didn't understand that I wasn't qualified to do that. So it was like, well, let's help this woman come up with what her next book is going to be. And she was somebody that I didn't really connect with on a professional or personal level. We just were very from very different worlds. And I was really shy and I had to go down to her house. She didn't live in New York and spend a couple days there getting to know her and like she put me up in a hotel, but I had to spend a lot of time with her, and mm-hmm. I wasn't comfortable with learning her. Learning her voice. Learning her voice. Uh-huh. And all I wanted to do was go sit in the hotel bathtub and smoke <laughs> pot. Like, it's, you know, and I just kept trying to get away from her so I could just go and, like, do my Joan Didion imitation, you know? And I, had, I just was, like, so out of my depth. And then I ended up getting, like, there was a freak snowstorm, and I got stuck there for a couple extra days, oh, and I was no. just like, this sucks. I'm running out of pot. <laughs> I don't like this lady. I don't like her dog. Like, it just, I don't know. It just wasn't a good match. She was super nice. It just was like. But that dog. Yeah. It just wasn't a good fit, you know? And, and yeah. so, but I tried and I tried and tried to, like, do it. And, and you know, I think everybody knew that I wasn't, right. I wasn't getting there. And then I got fired. And it was humiliating, but it was, it was a relief, yeah. you know, and yeah. for everybody, you know, but it was, it was tough. It was a tough lesson just to realize like, oh, just because you did this once it's, you know, every project is different. Every person is different. It's definitely not part of my official resume. And then that's when you went to, to culinary. And then after culinary, where did you, where did you? So I went, it? I, after our culinary, I went to Wine Spectator magazine. Mm. How was that? Um, it was, you know, again, one of these things that was like good and bad. I mean, I learned a tremendous amount. How's working with a bunch of wine people? For somebody who really liked to drink alcohol, it was great. <laughs> I learned a lot. I really didn't know that much about wine, except that I liked to drink it. And right. I just sort of by osmosis, really, I learned a tremendous amount. And there were so many opportunities. I mean, every new employee, no matter what department they were in had the opportunity or in some cases were compelled to take a wine like an intro wine course Uh so right away I was you know immersed in this wine course which was great there were as many opportunities to learn as you wanted there to be right right so that was good it's a very male organization it's kind of old school in some ways I mean it's a publication that's very geared toward collectors and people that are looking for things on the high end. You know, sure. it's very points driven. Sure. What's the cheapest wine at Trader Joe's right now? Yeah. None of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, there was a small segment of our editorial content that was sort of reserved for lighter stuff. Right. And I mean, and, and I was on the web staff. So, you know, we had a column once a week called Unfiltered that was uh-huh. sort of like lighter stories about sure. wine. And I loved it because it was like the only chance to like make jokes right, and right, have like right, funny right, right, art. Right. And for a while I was editing it. And that was like definitely one of the highlights of of the job there. I mean, to be very frank, I, I felt like I needed to get out of art culinaire, that it was just sort of the, the commute and the... Well, it was all on your shoulders. Yeah. And the, the publisher was so sadistic and people kept getting laid off. And I felt like, I don't know how much longer. Who's getting this... laid off? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With the staff, like, that's well. <laughs> I don't know how much. Well, the, the, there was an art director that got laid off uh-huh. and it just, you know, I just felt like my, you know, the axe right. is going to fall True. sooner or There are not that many people in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought, let me get out of here while I still can. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was happy to be working in Manhattan again mm-hmm. where I lived. I had some really wonderful colleagues and I had some really shitty colleagues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
so it was, you know, another one of these things where it was like, I'm learning a ton. I had never really done any kind of like web editing before. So I learned all about the CMS and, you know, mm-hmm. the sort of the daily grind of putting out into fresh web content and all the other things that go into making a publication mm-hmm. in addition to the wine stuff. And I got to, you know, work with some really high-end chefs on the food side of things as corporate as it was, I mean, it was, I'm, you know, it was pretty loose in some ways, but just, you know, a large office and all that entails. So it was, it was great, but it wasn't, I'm not at heart a wine person. The natural end kind of came when I got married, I got pregnant, I left on maternity leave, and then I came back and I had worked out a schedule of four days a week and, you know, reduced pay and blah, blah, blah. And that really worked out well for me so I could have one day at home with my kid. Then somebody else got pregnant and said, oh, I want to do the same thing that Lori's doing. And the management said, no, no, we're not a family. Like, literally, we're not a family-friendly company. We don't do that. So I was like, all right. So I stayed as just as long as it took for me to find another job Mm, and mm. got out because I just thought, I don't love this enough to go through what it is to be, you know, working five days a week with the infant. Yeah, it sounds like it just, you know, it it wasn't a good fit. Yeah. And then, and then where did you land? So then from so the job I got that allowed me to quit Wine Spectator was working for Anthony Bourdain. So I reached out to him and a million other people over the course of a couple of days and said, you know, I'm trying to leave my full-time job. I'm looking for something part-time. If you happen to know of anything, just please, you know, keep me in mind. What was your interaction with him at that moment? I had worked with him on his first cookbook uh, called the Anthony Bourdain's Lay All Cookbook. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mario had set me up with that job and it was very similar. It was was taking recipes from the kitchen notebooks and making them into cookbook style recipes and then testing them at home. So we had worked together in that way in sort of a limited role. I didn't see him in person that often because he was already traveling a lot, but we had a, a good working relationship on that book. He was really happy with my work. And then I had done one event for him because his assistant at the time was pregnant. He needed to do a cooking event in Montana and he needed somebody to help him. So I had gone along on that. So we knew each other a little bit professionally and Mm -hmm. he knew I had worked for Mario. And so I had the whatever skills were necessary. So I reached out to him and a bunch of other people and said, I'm looking for a job. And he, he just happened to be looking for a new assistant at that time. And it was just... And so you were ready to jump back into the assistant role? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I thought for anybody else, no, you know, right. because I've, I've kind of moved past that. But for him, of course, you know, just because I, I knew he was a good guy. And, you know, I just, it just seemed like... Had you read Kinship Confidential at oh, that yeah. moment? Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And this was maybe a, a couple years after that? This or was, yeah, this more? was in 2009, actually. It, so a number it. of years after... So I could just tell that it was, it was at least worth giving it a shot, you know, and I had always, you know, liked him. So we, we said, all right, let's give it a try and see how that goes. And that was, and that was the job that I had up until he died. And, you know, the job that I thought I would have, I always said, I'll work for Tony until he dies, Mm. but I didn't think that that day would come so soon. Mm. So... And it was a job that definitely grew over time. I mean, it went from, you know, his, his description initially was, you know, just like making restaurant reservations and like, <laughs> you know, doctor's appointments and, you know, like pretty low key. Right. And, you know, I continue to do that stuff, but it definitely grew into a larger role with, you know, working on cookbook and just, you know, being kind of a communications facilitator between all of the different moving parts of his life. So did you end up finally helping him curate content for the shows? 
No, no, that so was those totally were set separate. by other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a whole really talented production staff and company that that dealt with the shows. Mm-hmm. So I I didn't have any, you know, I had a good working relationship with with those guys, mm-hmm. but I didn't have any like editorial input on. Any did of you that. travel with them? Once a year, I did. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple years after my son was born, when I felt like I could kind of get away. I don't know. Tony somehow took notice. I guess I went on a trip by myself to Columbia and I had mm-hmm. asked him for recommendations and it sort of occurred to him like, oh, she likes to travel mm-hmm. and she's, you know, able to leave her kid first. Noted. And, yeah. So then he said, well, I, it's great that you like to travel. If, you know, if you would be interested, I'd love to have you come along like, you know, once a year, like pick a location and I'll pay for you to, to come along just to observe. And, you know, you can do your own writing projects unrelated to the show. Or, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. So I thought, fuck yeah, I'm going to do that. So so for a number of years, starting in 2014, I would go on one shoot a year. So I went to Vietnam, I went to Japan twice, I went to Sri Lanka, and oh, wow. I went to, uh, the last one I went to was Hong Kong mm. last year. So it was fantastic. Some of the things you remember from those trips? Well, let's see, what do I remember? <laughs> <laughs> the first trip, I mean, the Vietnam trip was really special because it was the first time I had been on the ground in Asia ever. Mm-hmm. And to be in this country that he loved so much, that he was so happy in, was fantastic. And, you know, he invited me to ride along with him on his motorbike, which Mm. I thought, oh, my God, like, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) You know, this is it doesn't get any cooler than that, you know. Um, So that was really exciting and fun. And just it's such a such a beautiful country. And we were in central Vietnam in Hue, which is sort of a smaller city, and a little easier to manage than a place like Hanoi or Saigon, where it's really hard to cross the street. So I didn't know what to expect. I just thought of him as somebody that wanted to be left alone and didn't want, you know, to have people, you know, taking up his time. And so I was, I really planned to like stay away, you know, mm-hmm. and, but he kept kind of saying, no, no, come and come have breakfast with me. Or there was a, there was one shoot, it was in a cave. It was about an hour's drive from the hotel mm-hmm. and it was in a, a cave and on a beach. And so the crew had gone on early and he said, well, you know, why don't you ride with me? you know, to the, to the location. And I, I was like, okay, you know, you sure you want to spend an hour in the car with me? Um, (laughs) I knew him fairly well. I was going to say you've been working with him for a while. Yeah. But we really didn't spend that much time together Mm. in person because, you know, so much was done on email. So I brought a book, you know, just in case he like didn't want to talk. Put your headphones on. Yeah. And then we ended up talking pretty much the whole time. I will always remember that ride out there and back and you know some stuff we we talked about business and we got a lot of stuff done but then it was just like sort of more talking about you know places he'd been and he was telling me some of the stories of recent exciting adventures on the road you know I've always said I never had any illusions that like Tony was like my own personal Tony he was pretty much the same on and off camera and more or less. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, he would sometimes have more energy on camera and then be, you know, trying to reserve his energy off camera. But it wasn't like he told different types of stories on and off camera or, you know, it was a consistent... Like the camera turned on and he was instantly and changed into a different person. There were stories that he told me on the, at that drive or at other times that I would hear him tell other people or I would hear him say on a podcast or, you know, that he would write about, you know. So I don't know what my larger point is, just that, you know. See, th- he was a genuine guy. Yeah. I, you know, when he died, I think as often happens when somebody who's very well-known and beloved dies, there's this outpouring, especially now with social media, there's this outpouring of personal stories. And this is that I met him and he was great. And here's a picture of me with him or, you know, everyone kind of, and then, 
everyone gets made fun of for making it about them, you know? And I understand the impulse and I understand the need to kind of say, well, this person had an impact on me personally. One of my best friends from growing up committed suicide while I was in college. And, you know, I, I, I came to look at it as a disease, just like you can die from cancer. You can die mm-hmm. from suicide uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in a depression state. And everybody wants to come to terms with it in their own way. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, it's just part of the process. But yeah, I think when you're, when you're grieving, and especially when you were close to someone, and especially when you weren't finished with that person, right? Mm-hmm. And you assume that they weren't finished with you, that you're just very easily annoyed with how everybody comes off at that moment yeah. and, and how they want to say like, oh, it's okay. You're going to be better. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like, you don't want to hear any of that shit. Yeah. You know, the only thing is, is, is just that, you know, it takes time. It takes yeah. time to start to try to get through some of it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like, you know, let me do my process and, and yeah. don't fucking annoy me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, everyone's, you know, everyone's got their, their ways of dealing with it or their ways of trying to make you feel better. I don't, mm-hmm. for some reason, what annoys me so much, and I know it comes from a place of total good intentions is when people are like, Tony's so proud of you. And I'm like, he's I'm not, right, totally. he's not because he's <laughs> not here anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. Tony's looking down on you. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like, oh yeah, leave me alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just, I mean, I guess it comes, maybe comes from a, a belief in God or a belief in the afterlife, which I don't share. So I'm just like, right. you know, maybe Tony was, proud of me like I don't know if you you know I don't it's I don't I don't want to make it about me you know it's just like I'm 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 sad I feel Mm -hmm. I wish that he were still here and I wish that he had not chosen to do what he did were you just like completely just surprised 100% yeah I I mean yeah I don't know I don't Mm. don't want to get into that too much but um yeah I never expected it if someone had said to me this is going to happen I wouldn't have you're ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have about? seen a scenario in which it was possible. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are some people that you're like, oh, you know, <laughs> any day now. <laughs> but he wasn't one of those people in my mm-hmm. life, to my understanding of him, um, mm-hmm. before he died. So, it definitely was a jarring. It just it just changed my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I had just separated from my husband and moved out about a month before that. And mm. so then, you know, the, the one, two punch of, of, mm-hmm. you know, the end of my marriage and the end of my job and, and my yeah. boss, this person who was my, yeah. yeah. I mean, he was kind of my organizing principle. Mm. I've said a lot, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of like how, what I did every day and, you know, how I lived my life and what I thought was possible in the mm-hmm. world and, um, you know, what I was looking forward to. So it's, it's been a big, it's been a big adjustment mm-hmm. for sure. So. What are some of the things that you've learned from him? Or from even just working in that that experience, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, he's famously about being on time, being mm-hmm. early. Not even on time, mm. but being like, you know, ridiculously That's early. a good life lesson. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, in the kitchen, in any job, mm-hmm. um, you know, showing up for interviews. But then again, not too early, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Like today I was getting my apartment cleaned up a little bit before you came and mm-hmm. I thought, oh God, I hope he doesn't want to come like really early, like do the Tony thing, you know, because I'm still running the vacuum. Mm-hmm. 
but being on time, really thinking carefully about like who you're working with and what you're doing and is it making you happy or is it making you miserable? I mean, he had what he would always say is the no asshole rule, you know, he, he <laughs> which had, is a great rule, yeah, by the way. Yeah. If you can, if you, if you can afford to, if you have the luxury to be able to like cut assholes out of your life mm-hmm. and your work landscape, then you should, you know, I mean, he had a lot of opportunities presented themselves, businesses and different things. And it was always, you know, who am I working with? Do I want, right. he would always say, do I want to answer this person's phone call at 11 at night? Mm. You know, do I want to be like dealing with this person in my life? Mm. You know, and if there was even a shred of doubt, it was like, this is, it's not worth it. No money in the world is worth, is worth that. So it's a good qualifier. Yeah. Yeah. What else did I learn from him? I, well, you know, I don't know if this is, was helpful or not, but he had this sort of cavalier, attitude toward money. You know, this idea of like life is short, you know, there's not enough time in the world to be worried about money, mm. which, <laughs> which, you know, that one is good if you have a lot right, of money. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but it was, it was just sort of like, you know, what's, it was back to the idea of like, what's important. Life is for the living, do the things that make you happy, you know, upgrade yourself a little bit, you know, get the extra leg room, mm-hmm. get the, you know, get the nicer hotel room, you know, things that, you know, live your life and enjoy things while they're in front of you. Mm. And loyalty. I mean, he was an incredibly fiercely loyal person Mm -hmm. and really wanted that from other people. So just the value of that and knowing that there's somebody that has your back and and being a kind the kind of person that other people can trust and being a loyal person and the you know how how that kind of forms the backbone of of your you know your work relationships and your family relationships that that was something that was super valuable mm. too so his word was good he if he said yeah. he would do something he would do it yeah 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 and quickly mm. i mean he was somebody who you know if he if he wanted to do something if he wanted if he felt strongly about something and you emailed him, he would get back to you right away. Hmm. You know, there was no point in in sort of being ambiguous about something. You know, so yeah. And if he he was somebody who held himself to that to the same standard that he held other people in terms of showing up on time, doing your best work. You know, being loyal, being being a person of your word. Were those feelings spread out on the shoots? I mean, I feel a lot of times the the talent dictates mm-hmm. the mood on on the shoot. Mm-hmm. So if it's coming across from him that he has all of these great qualities and he's such a good guy, the productions must have gone so well. People must have really loved, you know, working on the show and Yeah, I you know, I I only can say what I saw and as a an observer and you know, remembering the things that he would say about mm-hmm. the and I got to know some of the some of the guys from the crew. You know, every, I think everyone felt really lucky to be doing the work that they were doing, having the kind of creative freedom that they did, having it be as much of a collaborative experience as it was. And, you know, people's viewpoints being considered. And I can't really say, you know, too much more specifically because I wasn't part of the crew. But Mm -hmm. I I know that in the wake of, of Tony's death that, you know, everyone's sort of trying to feel their way. Everyone's looked around and said, well, you know, this this is not going to come again. This type of, mm. you know, they could, I mean, some of them have... Stars uh, had aligned. Yeah, yeah. So mm. I, th- I think there was a sense of 
We're all doing our best possible work. We're all pushing ourselves creatively. The cinematographers working at the top of their games, mm. editors. I mean, they routinely were, you know, winning awards and, you know, just doing work that you could see everyone took a lot of pride in. So I, I think Tony's passion for, for that, I think definitely, I mean, it also sort of affected who, who stuck around and who became, you know, the regular shooters and the regular editors and, and directors and producers. You know, it was people who, who had that same, who could meet Tony at his level mm. of, of passion and intensity and, and desire to kind of do something new every time and to really push the boundaries of, you know, what the networks would allow and how they could push themselves creatively. Hmm. So, and so you're and you're working on his book now. Yeah. So how's that going? Well, it's, you know, it's not easy. We started to write a book together. We had just started when he died, a travel book that's sort of a guide. Basically it's Tony's guide to the world. So, you know, this is a guy who had literally been everywhere Mm. around the world and seen and eaten and done so many things. And this is kind of a tightly chosen atlas of the world, of the places that he loved from his travels. Mm. So it's not every single geography. And within every geography, it's not every single restaurant or hotel or site or whatever, but it's the places that stuck with him that he could, you know, pretty much name off the top of his head as being like real highlights Mm. of his travels. So I'm working on that. You know, that was supposed to be a co-authored project, and it's it's a difficult and strange thing to be doing it on my own, but mm-hmm. I'm just pushing through and have a lot of help from the people that worked with him and, you know, the the record of, of everything that's out there. And then the other book that I'm working on that came up after his death, obviously, is uh, an oral biography of his life. Mm. So that's consisting of interviews with people that, you know, fr- that knew him from the time he was a kid up until the end of his life and kind of everything in between, you know, colleagues, friends, family, you know, old employees, uh, just everybody. Mm. So that's a longer project. I and mean, I've been c- conducting interviews since last summer for that, you know, hoping to tell parts of his story that haven't been told or just hoping to, you know, paint a fuller picture of, of the impact that he had on sure. so many people and on the world. Do you have a title yet? No, I think the working title is like Anthony Bourdain oral biography. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it'll be something more interesting than that, but probably pretty, pretty basic involving his name. So mm. 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 That's my job at this point. You know, I mean, I always. And that's a lot. Yeah. I, you know, I always wanted to be a writer, but I always was afraid not to have a real job, quote unquote, um, because writing is such a financially precarious job. And so, through no choice of my own, sort of, I am just a writer. And it's terrifying, but, you know. That is true. You You are. Spending lots of time writing, yeah, and yeah. and carb facing and podcasting, yeah. yeah, I suppose. But that's yeah. that's a hobby, really. I mean, we have not figured out how to make a dime off that yet. If there's any sponsors out there, you mm-hmm. know, uh, contact us both. Please. Yeah, we're constantly shilling for sponsors. <laughs> so, that being said, can we do a little game? Is that okay? Sure, I okay. love games. Good. This is not such a hard game. This okay, game. good. It's the game of threes. Okay. And it can be real or made up. Okay. So it, you know, so we'll start off with, cause you're a candy fan. Yes. Three rejected candy flavors. Chicken. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's probably made up. Although we did, we did try and get high chew say. to make a chicken chew. Um, that sounds very Willy Wonka. Black licorice for me what? is just a is just an, is a hard pass. Really? 
And but it's not failed though, technically. Yeah, it's just re- I reject right, it right. personally. Reject <laughs> it. And um, in jelly bean form as well. All of it. Yeah. Yeah. Not good. Gum. Just, oh, no blackjack gum. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah. I, Is that I, still made? I, that's a good question. Yeah. I don't. I haven't seen it. My friend that I was traveling with bought some black licorice in mm-hmm. Lyon because mm-hmm. he likes it. Well, even for him, he was like, "Ooh, this is." It was just it, had was no it salty. It, it wasn't <laughs> salty, but it had either no sugar or not enough sugar, and the intensity of the black licorice flavor was so strong. It was like it sort of like took all the moisture out of your mouth. <laughs> you know, it was like mm, gonna hard pass. And honestly, for me. Cinnamon candy also is a hard pass. Really? So <laughs> you're looking. You brought me this box of candy. You're like, uh oh, fifty percent of it's going in the no. trash. So there's a candy store across from the restaurant called Giddy in San Francisco, and she's awesome. And she put together this box of, you know, not typical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. so th- there, there could be a cinnamon uh, okay. gummy something hiding in there. So, well, but I'm, it's probably in a shape that you won't know. So, yeah. so it'll surprise it'll be a fun you. Fun surprise. Yeah. Well, we're recording Carb Face later this week, so I'll bring it in and. Share Share oh, nice. with Chris and make him react. Um, so, but one of my favorites, chocolate covered gummy bears. Wow. Have you, have oh my you, God. you must have had those before, right? I don't think so. I'm it's, really, I'm you know excited. what? I'm, I'm interested to hear your take on it okay. because I love them. Uh-huh. Um, some people don't. Yeah. But anyway, so, okay. so, so we had chicken, we had licorice uh-huh, and, for cinnamon. Rejected, and cinnamon. Got yep. it. Okay. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so how about, you know, and I was thinking of this on the way here today, three sounds you only hear in New York. Car horns are everywhere, right? But mm-hmm. I feel like it's such a New York. They, they irritate me more in New York. <laughs> There's this beautiful documentary film called In Jackson Heights by Frederick Wiseman that came out a couple of years ago. And it's about this neighborhood that I live in, Jackson Heights, Queens. It's long. It's like three, three and a half hours. It's a very naturalistic documentary style. And and one of the defining sounds of the film is is car horns because mm, mm. there's just there's a lot of mm, it mm. here yeah. yeah and it's although almost, we're we're in your apartment with the mm-hmm. window open and it's been surprisingly quiet yes, yes impressively a, quiet it's something about i don't know the position of the apartment within the building it's actually very quiet mm. i used to live just a block away on the street level and at the intersection of two busy streets and it's constant noise mm-hmm. and over here it's like it's weirdly quiet mm. so car horns i know it's mm-hmm. not only new york Oh, what's another only in New York noise? Or, that's or a, I could even say distinctively New York. Mm, Is that helpful? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking like, what are some of the of the noises that that irritate me on a general ba- <laughs> on a daily basis? I mean, the overhead train, the seven train. Uh-huh. Of course, there's other cities that have overhead trains, and you know, ambulances. But again, that's a that's a very common sound. Yeah. Um, People are are in emergency globally. Yeah, yeah. The guy riding the skateboard down the middle of the street oh the fucking ice cream man again <laughs> not you know not specific only to new york but there i don't know if 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 it's only new york where they play turkey in the straw as the uh, is the most common ice cream truck sound is that the name of the song yeah it's like there's a few there's a few others that they play there's a there's a new newer ice cream truck like in the last 10 years where it's like some bastardized version of turkey in the straw, and then there's a woman's voice going, hello, <laughs> hello. <laughs> it's like, what? That makes me want to run as far away from your truck as possible. Hello. Um, it makes me laugh, but I'm also just like, oh. 
Also, like, I'm sure they're just selling, you know, nickel bags. <laughs> Although maybe not anymore now that things are practically legal and maybe there's the, the, the drug trade and ice cream trucks is going to go by the wayside. That'd be sad. You know, that would be a good combo truck, though. Yeah. Oh, I know. think it exists. <laughs> I think it definitely exists. Oh, well, like out in the open? Uh-huh. Yeah. Or before and after. That'll be, yeah. So, because I was thinking when I was on the, on the Metro on the way here, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, closing doors. Oh, uh, yeah. Stand uh, clear yeah. of the closing doors, please. Yeah, that that is distinctively New York. Yeah, right? yeah, and that feels new too. I mean, that used to there never used to be the recorded, you know, sort of soothing tones of of right. You know, it was he does just, sound oddly, you know, kind of happy about his announcement. You yeah, know? yeah, he sounds like he's smiling. Yeah, like, what it, the fuck are you smiling <laughs> about? I know, because it's always like we are being held momentarily <laughs> in the station. Um, yeah, it's very... You should sound more, like, annoyed and, you know... Yeah. And neurotic about it, yeah. you know? Or it and should like, just be the conductor. Add some cussing. Well, I feel if it was the, the conductor, at least in San Francisco, you can never hear the conductor speaking, ever. Yeah. Ever. It doesn't matter, like, what they're saying. You can hear the canned announcements yeah. perfectly, but the conductor, never. It's just... I feel like they're, they're at volume, like, two. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. It's very... It's a real crapshoot, but... I remember back in the 90s when the taxis had... They first started running these like recorded ads in the backs. Then it was like Eartha Kitt and just like these kind of random like D-list celebrities would mm-hmm. be like, buckle up your seatbelt. <laughs> and you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> and that was before there was, now there's televisions in the taxis. When they would maybe take a credit card, but they would certainly be annoyed and, yeah. and they would very surely tell you that it was probably out of order. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, my machine's not working. <laughs> yeah. The TV now in the taxi, I love. I don't know what it is, but the headlines are always like the most like mayhem and murder, violent. Like there'll be like the little headline at the bottom of the screen and it's always like there's a rape, there's a robbery, there's like a, you know, a horrible car crash. Like there's 10 headlines and they're all like geared toward like tourists, like scaring the shit out of tourists, you know. It's, Times Square's on fire. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Um and maybe that's what just what the news is, and I just don't watch the news except in the back of the taxi. <laughs> Are you a musical fan? Are you like a like or, musical or like theater a play or like a? Yeah, I think I'm like I was thinking about this the other day because I sometimes will talk to a friend who's very immersed in the world of musical theater. Mm-hmm. She's like a former actor, and her, she goes to plays all the time. Mm-hmm. And her partner was a um, was a director, so. We talk about this stuff, and I'm always very careful to not sound like an idiot, you know? So I was trying to think about how I would describe it. I'm like a casual enthusiast. Mm -hmm, You know, like mm -hmm. I'm someone who, like, suddenly got really into theater when the Hamilton soundtrack came out, you know? (laughs) I do love musical theater, but I don't, don't, like, claim to be any kind Mm -hmm, of expert mm -hmm, in it. mm -hmm. And I've, you know, I've been to a couple of shows, but um, in in theory, I like it, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, So you would be good enough to name three made-up musical names. Magazine Editors on Fire, a musical. <laughs> That's like the follow-up to Newsies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, trash can <laughs> an exclamation point but i feel like that's kind of the one the like the subtitle for stomp oh yeah 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 mm-hmm. trash, but still trash lid mm-hmm. and <laughs> this is hard uh, yeah, you're so good at it let's see something to do with keto keto the the keto <laughs> diet diaries <laughs> i don't know okay so no but the keto diet diaries is fantastic mm. What's the first musical number in the Keto um, Diet Diaries? It's called I Can't Poop. <laughs> <laughs>
it's a solo, but I feel like maybe others would join in because it's really, yeah. a, it's, you know, like it's a common problem. Yeah. It starts out as a solo mm-hmm. and then slowly like more and more mm-hmm. like singers on yeah. toilets on wheels come yeah. like, you know, <laughs> fill in the background of the stage. <laughs> So gross. And, and it's and it's non-class specific. Yeah, because everybody non, poops. It's non-race specific. Right, it's, right. It's gender neutral. Yeah, exactly. If, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And as the book says, everybody poops. Yeah. 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 Or right, doesn't. So, so, <laughs> so last one, three fears. Three fears. I know, that one's like a slap in the face. Yeah. Always. I fear that my son is going to want to one day want to either ride a bike or ride a skateboard <laughs> in New York. <laughs> And that's going to fill me with fear. Mm. Um, I blame you. I fear that, I guess I fear running out of money like everyone mm. or, or running out of work that will generate money for me. I have a fear of looking like an old woman. <laughs> Is that too sad? No. Uh, I, sometimes I'm like, I'm like, oh shit. Like I feel like I'm 12 a lot of times mm-hmm. and then I'm like, I'm 45, <laughs> like, you know, like I, I know it's, it's, I'm definitely in like high end moisturizer territory very sooner than later. So, you know what I just learned is mm. that cause I put uh, moisturizer on my face mm-hmm. cause I'm also over 40. I just learned that you should put it on your neck too. Oh yeah. Well, oh yeah. What's, well, um, it's a thing. Yeah. I feel about what was that book? I feel bad about my neck. It was, um, <laughs> the Fame, Nora Ephron. Versus I, I feel bad for my neck. Yeah. Well, you get to, yeah. you can, you can grow a beard so you can cover up I some can, of it. I can, but it, but at some point there's a part where the beard ends. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I was, I was looking at it the other day and I was like, oh, I need to put, I need to put it on there too. Yeah. It's a yeah. whole thing. The neck, the neck goes, there's very expensive neck creams. They're just for the neck. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So, so last game and this one's a personal favorite. Okay. What's your feeling on the Beastie Boys? I love the Beastie Boys. Okay, so this is going to be great for you. Yeah. Well, in theory. What's a one-syllable name? If I were like the fourth Beastie Boy? Sure. But, but, but like, just give me like a name, any name that's just one syllable. Like, don't give me like uh, uh, Felipe, you know? Okay. Like, give me like a name with one syllable. Okay, Bill. Bill. Great. This is the Beastie Boy rap Rhyme game. Oh, okay. No, this is fantastic. <laughs> I love this game. So, Bill. Okay. Yeah. So, I'm going to say, I've got a friend whose name is Bill. Uh-huh. And then, you know, the musical interlude, like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh-huh. And then you have to rhyme Bill uh-huh. in the cadence. So, you say, like, uh, he's really sick. He needs a pill. pill. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. And then, and then you, it's, and we go back and forth until we, until we run out. Okay. But the best part about it is, you know how the Beastie Boys, they always, like, they always all did the last word? Yes. So you, you want to do it where it's clear enough where kind of everybody can get the word, right? Okay. Just like you uh, got Pill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. So I've got a friend whose name is Bill. da 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 mm-hmm. And then... Clonopin is his favorite pill. Mm-hmm. da 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 He's going to die. He needs a... Will. I saw him once on Dr. Phil. He likes 80 Bryant's new show, Shrill. He went outside naked to have a thrill. In olden times, he wrote with a quill. 
He won't do it, but his sister will. He's sitting on the window. He's sitting on a sill. His bank account is zero. His money is nil. He loves the fish oil. He loves the krill. So good. Uh, and he has a list of people that he wants to kill. kill. <laughs> He's got to get to his job down at the mill. mill. Da, 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 da. His favorite pickle is sour dill. Dill. Da, 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 da. You picked a good word. He hates light cream cheese. He likes the real. <laughs> now we're getting into slant rhymes. It's good in a group of like a few people because then yeah. it gives you a second to think of one when it comes around. But then somebody like a jackass throws out a really hard name that nothing rhymes with. And that kills the game. And, and it just, yeah, it's just, it makes it hard. D- did you like that? Do you like I like that. It's a good, it's a good, it's funny too because so in the kitchen, we'll play it in the kitchen. If you're in a good rhythm in the kitchen and you're mm-hmm. not like super slammed, but you're busy enough where you're, you know, at a good steady pace. Mm-hmm. It's nice sometimes to have a little game to play. Yeah. And, and so we'll, it's funny too, because you can go on with it. some words like Bill was a good one mm-hmm. rhyme with yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah. And then somebody will throw, throw out like a, like a Peter or something mm-hmm. that, and then you'll just be like, you know, his name is Dieter or right. uh, <laughs> Neater. I'm old. I need my readers. <laughs> <laughs> My bird's at the feeder. I mean, actually, you could do a couple with Peter. It's not bad. <laughs> well, Lori, thank you so much for this. This Absolutely. has been fantastic. Thanks for sharing everything of course. Uh, that you shared and about your life, about um, your experiences with Mario and your experiences with Anthony and just generally continuing to fight the good fight. My we'll, pleasure. We'll look for the book. So you can find her socially at Lori Wooliver. Or you can check out the podcast, which I highly recommend, by the way. It's yes, me too. <laughs> <laughs> at Carb Face Pod, or go online to lauriwilliver.com. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind. Find us on all things social at Culinary Mindcast and on the web, canelasf.com backslash podcast. Don't forget to rate us where you found us.